our Good Friday service. It's actually the first, uh, this is the first normal Good Friday service we've had in three years, believe it or not, so uh, since 2019. So it feels good to be back and at a service like this on one of the best days of the year, Good Friday, with you all um, feeling a little bit more normal. So um, we're going to be reading from Matthew 26 tonight. If you happen to have a Bible or a phone up and want to turn there, we'll be in uh, Matthew, Matthew 26, 36 to 46. I'm going to say a few things about it after I read it before we go uh, back into a time of worship and communion to end our service tonight. Uh, so we'll be in uh, Matthew 26, looking at uh, this time that Jesus prayed in an olive garden called Gethsemane uh, before, just hours before he was arrested. So let's read it in full to begin. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. And the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Okay, so uh, this passage, it's a really interesting passage uh, that maybe you're familiar with. Uh, there's really two main things going on that you, you probably caught wind of. Uh, the disciples uh, can't stay awake. And then on the other side, Jesus is praying a lot. He, and I would say he's beginning to suffer. He's uh, kind of entering into a, a pre-cross form of suffering, which we'll talk about too. But let's, uh, I just want to talk about those two sides of that uh, coin, the kind of that Gethsemane coin tonight. So we'll start with the disciples and um, talk about their sleepiness. Uh, Peter, James, and John are there, so he leaves the, other, uh, the others behind and brings this kind of inner ring, this inner three with him, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee named James and John, and they're there. And I think it's, uh, even though this is almost a betrayal, uh, of Jesus here, it's appropriate that at this moment, at the end of history, this is um, the dawning, really, of the New Testament era. He's about to die for the sins of the world. Uh, it's appropriate that the disciples basically fall into a trance, and they literally can't keep their eyes open. Sometimes uh, this passage gets reduced to a lesson about staying awake spiritually, or being mindful of demonic attack, or maybe being continually prayerful, and those are all really good things, but not the lesson here. Because to say that that's the lesson uh, would be to say, to, to, to say that the lesson was don't be like the disciples would be to say that the disciples should have been awake during this time. But Jesus knew what he was doing. Uh, he was teaching them a different lesson that they would learn later when they were more fully awake in the gospel. And that is, when it comes to our salvation, Jesus doesn't ask for or need our help. When it comes to atoning for the sins of the world, Jesus is suffering and advocating to his Father for us while we are asleep on the ground with saliva dripping down our cheeks. Uh, it, it reminds me of a couple of places in the Old Testament. One of the places was Genesis 15. I'm not going to read this uh, just for length tonight, but it's a, a moment where God makes a covenant with Abraham 
and it says that he was put into a deep sleep when God is promising that Abraham would receive salvation and would receive provision from God. Abraham is just conked out uh, on the ground while God is even speaking to him, though he can't hear him. Uh, God's making promises. He's covenanting. He's uh, committing to Abraham, promising salvation in all of its forms, and Abraham was asleep. We're also in Genesis 9 when Noah uh, gets off the boat and he's passed out drunk while his son Shem uh, covers his shame and nakedness with a blanket. Um, and so in the Bible, sometimes you see covenants have shared responsibility between two parties, and sometimes it's not shared at all, uh, where the one stronger party takes on himself the responsibility to complete all the stipulations that make for peace. And this is what's happening here in Gethsemane. Uh, the New Testament is beginning. The new covenant is dawning. And this is what the Bible is talking about elsewhere in more explicit terms, but here in Gethsemane it's being suggested that there is no shared responsibility between God and us when it comes to salvation. Uh, we're asleep like the disciples when Jesus goes to war for us. We're asleep like the disciples when Jesus watches for us, when he prays for us, and when he shows himself willing to fight for those who fall asleep or get, or pa- get passed out drunk on him. In fact, if you think about it, uh, Jesus gives the disciples a command here, right? He says, stay awake and watch. Just do this one thing for me. But it's a command that they horrendously fail to keep. Uh, It's a pattern you see all throughout the Bible. When God makes commands, people go the other way. They don't listen. And this is the same theme as keeping here in Matthew 26 as well. But that's the point. The conditions of the covenant weren't stipulated on their obedience or their awakeness, but in spite of their disobedience and in spite of their sin. Gethsemane shows us that what Jesus is about to do on the cross is one-way love forever. And so again, it makes sense that the disciples would be in a trance. It makes sense that the disciples would fall asleep. In, in one sense, they had to fall asleep. Their eyes were too heavy to lift themselves, just like their salvation was too heavy for them to lift themselves. And and all of it underscores one message, that we are saved by grace, not by our works. And so Jesus comes back here in verse 45 and essentially says, look, you guys are still sleeping. Do, do, Do you now understand what you bring to the table? And he says, look, my betrayer is at hand. Do you now understand what I bring to the table? It turns out that it's really hard to take credit for things when you sleep through them. And so Jesus' sufferings then are are what follows. This is really where this is headed. And we're already starting to see this. We've already been kind of talking about it. But let me start with a helpful uh, linguistic tidbit here. And that is Gethsemane means oil press. I mentioned this before, but uh, I alluded to it. But a lot of times in the Bible, word meanings or etymologies uh, like this contain theology. uh, Or names as well. Let me think of some names. Um that uh, contain meaning. They're almost kind of like hints in the story of what the purpose is. Um, But here, the the location itself being an olive garden uh, in which an olive press was located signifies what's coming and what's beginning to happen. Uh, If you remember, maybe in, in another gospel account with Gethsemane, it says that when he prayed in Gethsemane, he sweat blood. Remember that? Like he was, he was so distressed that little drops of blood kind of fell off his forehead. Well, what's happening here is that Jesus is getting ready to be pressed out like an olive on the cross. 
And from his crushing will come what the Bible calls the oil of gladness, and it will anoint sinners and save them. The Old Testament uh, actually sets the stage for this in a number of places. I'll share a couple of places for tonight just for, for a little bit of context, and so you can see this. Uh, it's prophetic. But in places like Exodus 27, when the temple furnishings are being described, it says, You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure, pressed olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. And so one of the temple furnishings in the Old Testament required pure, pressed olive oil to produce light. And that's what's happening here in the New Testament as well, just on higher spiritual levels. Jesus is the new temple, he says in John 2. He's the new lamp. He's the light of the world. But in order for darkness to be pushed back, he has to be pressed and harmed and beaten for the oil of salvation to flow. Uh, In other words, uh, fuel for light comes at a cost in the Bible. And in our lives as well, fuel for light comes at a cost. Something had to be harmed to produce the oil. And so Jesus here, where he's praying and how he's praying, signifies the theology that it's his pressing, it's the weight of our sin, it's his crucifixion that will produce the oil of salvation and the oil of gladness and the oil of light. Or it also reminds me of Isaiah 17, uh, where it says, uh, right here, Isaiah is predicting a time of great judgment coming for the world, but how this judgment will leave gleanings of fruit for the poor. Uh, picking up in verse 6, it says, uh, gleanings will be left in it, as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. So again, similar idea, uh, but a beaten olive tree precedes a gleaning of food. A judgment of an olive tree, he's about to hang on a tree as well, a judgment of an olive tree produces a benefit for the reapers. And so you can kind of see the connection here of trees, but also the connection of judgments and pain. Jesus is that ultimate tree, the ultimate olive, and the ultimate olive tree that's beaten to produce for impoverished sinners who can't provide for themselves food and nourishment and oil and light. Uh, again, that's, uh, that we might glean of the fruit and the oil and, and be saved in the end. And so Matthew 26, then to go back to our passage, you can see these pre-sufferings begin to happen. It says, he began to be sorrowful, he began to be troubled. Uh, it says, Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. And then it says, going a little farther, he fell down with his face to the ground. And, and this is what Good Friday is all about. Uh, Gethsemane is a garden of, of, a garden of foreshadowing, essentially. Uh, Jesus was about to be pressed down uh, upon by the weight of our sins, the, the weight of the sins of the world. He was strained and poked and flogged and ultimately nailed to a tree. Uh, it is, uh, really, Good Friday is a straight-up horror flick. Uh, but, but all in love for us, all while we were still sleeping and not lifting a finger to assist him in any way. In verse 42, he prays, actually prays this three times, but the content of this prayer is so significant. It says, my father, he's, he prays, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may or will be done. The cup being the cup of God's wrath or this, um, this mission, the, this reason for why he was sent. He had to drink it. And so he prays, actually, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, 
um, I pray your will be done. Well, we know that the answer, that, that prayer was, was answered, right? It wasn't possible for the cup of his sufferings to pass. There was no way for the will of God to be accomplished without Jesus drinking in the wrath of God. There is no way for the love of God to be most fully expressed. There's no other way for sinners to be saved. And so, just to summarize this, uh, it, so in the spirit of how Jesus then says, look, my betrayer is at hand, we say, look at the horror of it all, but look at the beauty of it all. Jesus Christ died for us, and, and though we can't keep our eyes open, though apathy often rules and we find ourselves incapable of keeping his commands, he is still pressed to death by our sin that we might be forgiven. This is who Jesus is. He is worthy of your belief, your trust, your adoration, and your deference because it's by his grace you are saved, not by your works. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, so much for this passage and what it tells us about the grace of God, about the nature of the new covenant itself, which will be accomplished by the strength of God itself, not the strength of man. Or as it says uh, in, the, in the book of Jonah, many places actually in the Psalms and, and elsewhere, that salvation is, is the possession of God. It's your possession, which means it's yours to give, not ours to work out uh, with our good deeds, uh, whether we're a Christian or not. Uh, salvation is something you constantly give, like a, a steady drip of, of saline into our veins. It's, uh, it's, it's a steady food we get every day uh, that, that comes down from heaven like bread, like we've been talking about in, in the Gospel of John on Sundays for a while now. Um, Jesus, thank you for going the distance. Thank you for being beaten like an olive, crushed like a fruit. And what flowed, what, what type of juice or oil uh, oozed out from you in your blood, that was the oil of gladness. That's, that was the thing that we now drink in communion. Uh, we, we follow your command to drink your blood. And that's really what it means to be a Christian is to drink the blood of Jesus. We're, we're drinking the blood of the ultimate fruit, which is Christ. Um, you, you are the reason olives exist. You're the reason oil exists. You're the reason lamps exist. You're the reason trees exist. They all exist for your sake that you might fulfill them. And so we just pray that you would help us to, the, the rest of this evening and into this weekend, whether we're a Christian or not, just to be freshly or maybe newly or for the first time thankful that God became nothing in order to save us, that Jesus took on the worst of torture. Uh, he, he was pressed in an olive press. He was cut open with a flagellum. He was crucified among criminals pinned to a tree, poked, sliced into with thorns, and mocked and spit upon and derided by people who walked by. And maybe even most of all, he was turned away from by the Father, turned away from and experienced exile from God that we might, as exiles, be reconciled and brought back into the Garden of Eden. Ultimately, truly, and forever. For as the scriptures say, when we are placed into your hand, no one can snatch us away. When the, when the sun holds us, when the sun brings us in, no one can snatch us away from that love because that love is by grace. It's never by something that we do or say or think or earn or climb for or seek to turn your head with. Uh, and so that's why we can make that claim. If it was ever kept or maintained or proved by something we do, we could never hold on to that promise that we'd have it forever. But because it's constantly 
now and in the future and forever given by you, we can affirm that those who believe will never, ever lose their salvation. In Christ we pray, amen.